this is a diet of Brussels. Where have we got to in the Brexit negotiations uh, now that we've had the European Council? Well, uh, potentially we're quite a long way down the road of Article 50 now. The agreements at today's European Council that there had been sufficient progress on phase one uh, brings to a provisional end the uh, opening section of these uh, discussions about the UK's withdrawal. So as uh, you will remember, phase one was looking at a limited number of issues, financial liabilities, citizens' rights, and the Irish border, as well as some other issues, which were felt important to be resolved as uh, tidying up the old relationship before then moving on to discussing the new relationship that the EU and the UK would have. Now, those issues were, uh, to some extent, the relatively easy parts of the discussion that they were about trying to, to sort things out so that everyone knew where they were as uh, we moved into the, the next phase. But as you will also know, uh, because you are people who consume media uh, of different kinds, that the road to that deal was a very bumpy one. So I want to talk a little bit about what was agreed last week with the uh, joint report between the UK and the EU. I also want to talk about what was agreed today. This may be easy to start with today's uh, text because it really highlights a number of key points. Firstly, it uh, demonstrates the degree to which the EU is really focused on pursuing uh, its game plan for the entire process. It's uh, stuck very much to its guns about the sequencing of issues, what's going to be talked about when, and also it really in the past week has uh, been forced to underline that uh, this is a, a process that builds on uh, top of itself, if you like, that the deal that was reached last week might well have been a provisional one, but the working assumption is, is that the UK has made some commitments and that it is bound to those. Now, that might seem like a not unreasonable position, and it's uh, almost certainly the position of the British government. However, uh, the comments from David Davis uh, during his TV interview with uh, Andrew Marr uh, on Sunday last week, where he said that basically these were not in any way binding on the UK as a, a set of commitments, put a lot of uh, backs out uh, uh, across uh, the EU, with the consequence that most of this week has been about uh, inserting language into today's agreement to the effect that these are considered to be binding commitments and that, just to make doubly sure, we won't wait till the very end to draw up a legal text uh, to, to put them into effect. We will start doing that soon. And so it might well be that as early as... Uh, February next year, so in just uh, a month or uh, a bit more, 
or month of working time, the Commission will present a draft text for everyone to start uh, signing up to. Now, the reason for that is that there is always this concern that what was agreed last week in the joint report was potentially uh, still open, that as uh, discussions came round towards a final text next autumn, that then maybe the UK might try to go back on what it was trying to do, and that this might uh, cause a number of difficulties down the road. So better to be clear about what this was, and then try and tie it off so that then everyone could move on to the other stuff that's still on the agenda. Now that uh, content of that phase one is very much uh, focused around uh, the preferences of the EU that is largely an EU document rather than a UK document. Uh, there has been some work to kind of look at who uh, contributed what and as much as is visible from the public documentation most of the text in that joint report last week comes from EU sources uh, in uh, a variety of guises. So what does that cover? Well if we think about financial <coughs> financial liabilities then uh, the UK has said that it will continue to pay into the EU budget through to the end of 2020, which is the end of the uh, current financial period, uh, so that it will uh, not disrupt the financial arrangements that are very complicated uh, at the best of times, and uh, that, that will kind of tie that off. It will commit to paying the vast uh, majority of the liabilities that have been uh, requested by the EU um, and it's framed as we have discussed in previous episodes very much around the idea of a formula what is a, a fair way of working out how much the UK might be liable for rather than just picking a finger uh, picking a, a, a figure out of the air and uh, going with that now uh, that, I think, is a fairly clear-cut area where the UK has made some big concessions. That was the, the moment, really, uh, a couple of weeks ago, where the things started to move along, that the concession on finances was seen as a big step forward. Now, that fed into some uh, discussions uh, around citizens' rights and around the Irish border, the other two big issues. On citizens' rights... The UK uh, seems to have got more of what it wanted, but still largely accepts uh, the, uh, uh, the position of uh, the EU that we want to try and protect uh, citizens' rights as much as is possible. But the, the deal that is signed up to in last week's joint report is very much about existing nationals who are in the other's territory. It's not about the future. So there isn't a discussion about freedom of movement, uh, and that's something that will have to come uh, back into negotiations. However, the UK was able to start imposing some restrictions in terms of security checks, background checks. The process for registration might be simplified, but still will not be uh, cost-free. And that is something that is really a, uh, 
an area where there is uh, a degree of uncertainty, uh, partly because it's about existing uh, nationals who are uh, located elsewhere, but also because of the impact of other elements of the deal. And that's particularly clear with the Northern Irish uh, section of the text. And this was the area that you will remember that uh, stalled somewhat uh, earlier last week when the DUP decided that it couldn't accept the text that was being circulated. Now, with some reaffirmations about the importance of the territorial integrity of the UK, eventually the DUP was happy to sign on to text around Northern Ireland. Now, that text is not particularly precise. It essentially sets out a number of principles that everyone is happy to sign up to, but it doesn't really spell out how those principles are going to be put into effect. Now, the principles are that the UK has confirmed it will leave the single market and the customs union, as it said it would. It says that uh, both parties are committed to retaining an open border uh, with the uh, Good Friday Agreement uh, remaining uh, undisrupted. And also we've got this uh, commitment that the uh, uh, accommodation of uh, Northern Ireland's special situation shouldn't mean that Northern Ireland becomes cut off from uh, the rest of the UK with any additional barriers. Now the phrase that is used is that even though the UK will leave the customs, market, customs union in the single market, it will remain fully aligned with those areas of relevant legislation that are needed for the Good Friday Agreements to continue in force. Now, there are two issues in that. One, what does fully aligned mean? And secondly, what does the Good Friday Agreement cover? And clearly, uh, that is uh, up for much discussion. Full alignment, uh, in uh, technical terms, would seem to suggest that the UK might be able to write its own regulations, but those would need to essentially just copy what the EU's regulations uh, might be in relevant areas. So, uh, very much in the line of the critique of uh, some other third countries' relations with the EU, such as Norway, but not even uh, to that extent, this would be a sort of a, a shadowing of EU regulation and the UK would be taking rules from uh, the EU without any capacity to uh, shape them. Uh, from the British perspective, uh, there is some debate about whether actually you can, as long as you reach the same outcome, the structure doesn't have to be the same and that there's more flexibility than uh, one might think. However, nobody's come up with any real detailed working out of how you might do this. Similarly, with the Good Friday Agreements, opinions differ about how broad an agreement that is. Uh, from uh, the British government's perspective, there are a limited number of areas that uh, are covered uh, by that. Uh, which would relate to trade and to commerce, to agriculture, those kind of areas. So quite delineated and uh, limited in scope. Uh, for most Irish commentators, uh, north and south of the border, the Good Friday Agreement is a lot broader uh, than 
uh, that view and that in effect touches on pretty much every area of regulation. The, the Good Friday Agreement itself sits within a set of uh, broader institutions and commitments uh, by the various signatory parties and that it's hard to uh, pull uh, apart EU regulation uh, because it's so all-encompassing. Now, that matters because if uh, the Good Friday Agreement is all-encompassing and then you can make a case that everything the EU does uh, is related to that, then in fact the UK is a member of, it's applying all of the legislation and regulation uh, on the single market and the customs union uh, without being a member. Now, uh, whether that's actually the case is uh, kind of a moot point, but one that uh, is likely to bear uh, some closer discussion and debate in the coming months. One of the things that still isn't really clear in the joint report from uh, the member state, uh, from the UK and from the Commission is the question of enforcement. There's not really any provision about the role of the court of justice beyond uh, in relation to citizens' rights, where it will have a limited role. So if the system as a whole that is set out in this uh, phase one agreement is to work, there's going to have to be a difficult discussion and some concession on one side or the other uh, about what the court uh, can and can't pronounce on. All of this then uh, feeds into uh, the conclusions of the European Council today. It's quite a short document, the conclusions, uh, for the reason that the uh, EU, like the UK, hasn't really had the debate about what specifically it would like the relationship uh, between the two of them to be like. And as such, there's not really much the European Council can say in terms of the detail of where we're moving to. But the key point for me and for you is that what we are moving into now is going to be uh, a phase two that is not trade talks, which is what most people in the UK have uh, considered phase two to be about. It's actually about the arrangements for discussing trade talks. So we have to set up an arrangement of uh, negotiations between the UK and the EU, which would start when the UK actually leaves in March 2019. And that would follow a, a kind of a conventional third party uh, agreement of the kind that the EU has much practice in negotiating. But also, uh, it also implies that there's going to be a period between the UK leaving the EU and uh, bringing into effect this new relationship. So we've got a kind of a transitional period from one system to another. And that transitional period is really the heart of what uh, the conclusions talk about. In essence, what they are uh, proposing is what we might term a full Monty transition. Basically, the UK steps out of decision-making. It's not represented in any institutions. It hasn't got any MP, MEPs. It hasn't got anyone in the council or commission or anywhere else. It doesn't uh, participate in any of the decision-making. But it continues to be part of and apply all of the other activity of the EU. So it does all the things that the EU 
uh, does, but it doesn't have a say in how those things uh, work. The logic of this is that this is actually the simplest way to manage the transition, which is to just keep things as they are now, whilst the UK is a member state, and then you only have to have one transition from that transitional arrangement into the new relationship. That if you try and create a, a bespoke transition deal, where there are some things that apply, some things that don't, then you have to have one transition in March 2019, and then another transition at the end of the transition period. So why have double the cost uh, when you can do it in one step? Clearly, however, though, the practicalities are only part of the question, and you can imagine that there will be some in the UK who will feel that losing your rights to have a say on decisions while still having to take all those decisions in full, uh, not to mention continue your budgetary contributions, uh, sounds a bit like uh, the UK. EU trying to have its cake and eat it too. Now we don't know whether uh, the UK is going to try and push back on that but one of the difficulties the UK has is that it hasn't come up with an alternative plan for the transitional period. It's been very much focused on what the future state might uh, look like. So if it hasn't got an alternative then it's hard to say anything more than we don't like that arrangement but well we're not going to come up with an alternative. And this is why the EU is putting this into place at this stage, because it wants to try and cement that as much as possible as an agenda. However, that kind of full Monty model also raises the question of how long is the transition. The conclusions note the British position, which is that these should transition periods should last around about two years, and that it should be limited in that kind of way. Because otherwise, uh, if you just say it carries on and then nobody ever agrees anything, well, you know, the temporary has a habit of becoming permanent. And as a good example of that, we might think about the uh, European economic area, which was only intended as a stopgap measure and is now uh, over a quarter of a century old. The question, though, is, is two years... An appropriate length of time. On the one hand it provides a degree of certainty about when that uh, process will end and that's been very much the British view that you need to know how long it will last, not least because if those are the terms of the transition then uh, you at some point have to make good on what most people might consider leaving the EU, um, leaving the decision-making but taking uh, all of the, uh, the costs of membership is not what most people would consider to be uh, very meaningful. However, to negotiate a new comprehensive trades package, even though it's about managing divergence rather than about managing integration, which is what usually happens, you know, we're starting from the same uh, place in terms of regulation, it's about what we want to allow the UK to diverge on. Notwithstanding that, that is still a very substantial exercise. And if you factor in as well that you're going to have to ratify this, and that's almost certainly going to be some kind of mixed agreement, which means that uh, instead of being able to get away with uh, a majority vote, 
uh, of member states, you'll now need all member states to ratify it, including in some cases with uh, sub-national parliaments uh, in the way that happened with the CETA deal. That's a process which by itself can easily take a year. So that leaves maybe a year to negotiate a very complicated deal that has never been tried before uh, and which raises any number of questions. On top of which we also have the issue that neither the UK nor the EU is particularly clear about what it looks like, uh, what the future relationship might look like. So you might say, well, two years is not enough, so we could put more time in, but then that raises the problem for the British that then it starts to look like an endless feast. Maybe you have a system where you say by mutual agreement we can extend the period of the transition and that might be another way of doing it. What's interesting though is that both uh, the UK and several European leaders today have said that they don't see that transition period as being something that is extensible, that it should be defined in time, it shouldn't be allowed to extend and that it's about a degree of certainty. Now they say that in full knowledge of the practical issues that might well arise. What happens if you're making good progress on uh, a new deal and you, you run out of time? That's a much more likely scenario uh, than uh, even we've seen in Article 50. At least in Article 50 you have a process where everyone can agree to give a bit more time if that's necessary. But if the transition period is hardwired, and remember the rules of the transition period don't exist at the moment, uh, but at some point they will, that you know, if you hardwire in the fact that you can't amend those things, or you make it very hard to amend uh, the period, then you potentially create a rod for your own back. As much as both sides have been very clear in the past couple of weeks about how much they are willing to do to get a deal through, they don't want then to get a deal uh, settled for Article 50, have a two-year transition period and then find after all that, five years after the UK voted to leave, that the UK still crashes out with no new arrangement. Now, does this transitional arrangement cease to apply? Do we go to a no-deal kind of scenario? Does something else kick in? Can we change these things around? Now, you might say this is kind of classic EU territory, classic political territory where you kick things down the road a couple of years and maybe it's somebody else's problem at that point. But it's the kind of debate that we're going to need to see uh, developing a lot more in the coming months. That at the point when the phase two talks start in March, we need to have some more sense about what is and isn't going to be acceptable to everyone involved. We're still very much in the beginning of phase two. The European Council has asked the Commission to go away and present uh, a more detailed uh, mandate document for uh, discussion and approval. The European Council itself is going to go away and discuss more what it likes the relationship to look like with the UK. The UK has had its first cabinet uh, discussion this week about what the future shape of the relationship should be. So there is a lot that is still very much up in the air. But by the time we get to March we should have a better sense of what people are trying to work to and how manageable it is to uh, get 
the necessary structures in place for October of 2018, which is basically the deadline for getting a text together that can be ratified in time for the UK's departure in 2019. Lots more to come in the coming months. A lot more issues that are still unresolved. Quite a few issues that might have been resolved, but, well, might well come back to bite somebody on the bum. On that happy thought, I will wish you a happy Christmas and a new year, and I will talk to you again in 2019. Goodbye.